0: creating windows not bars a monthly show on justice radio on wmpg with your hosts mackenzie kelly and linda small today we are talking with rebecca barr a teacher at horace Mann in new york one of the top private schools in the country and colleen coffee an education equity and advancement coordinator with the Washington County Community College about challenges and opportunities for higher education for justice-impacted people while they are incarcerated and after they return to their home communities.
1: But first, a little bit about us.
0: I'm Linda Small, a project coordinator with Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition and Executive Director of Reentry Sisters, an organization with a
1: trauma-informed and a gender approach to reentry support. And I'm Mackenzie Kelly, a recovery coach and peer mentor coordinator of Healthy Acadia and the program director of Reentry Sisters. For the past several months, we have
0: worked together to provide support and community for justice impacted women as they reunify with their families, look for work and housing and complete their educational aspirations. Our show explores safety and community and asks what it's like for people to come home after serving time in prison. Welcome back Rebecca and Colleen for part two of our segment on prison education. In part one, both of you shared how you began working in prison education. Rebecca, you spoke about your amazing student Simon, who believed he and his fellow students could learn from incarcerated students because they truly valued their opportunity for education. And Colleen shared her impressive work on education and training. So incarcerated people are prepared to fill the jobs that main employers need. So let's begin with you, Rebecca.
1: So maybe let's talk about your most recent class. Um, how do you actually decide what it is that you're going to teach?
2: I worked very <clears throat> uh, closely with Abby too for the first semester for the last year. And then we worked again, I, I came to Maine both summers to meet with her in person and work on the curriculum. So we just sat down, we, we sort of, I came up with a kind of a framework we can have, uh, sort of a third of the class would be American poetry and the second part would be American fiction and then would be American nonfiction. And she was great because she knew some of the things that had worked really well with the women already. Like, um, I don't know if Linda, you've read Saigon by Phuc and I know she'd had Silas Haggerty on for Dakota 38, that film. So, and we, you know, decided together we wanted to do a Toni Morrison novel. I did most of the poetry stuff, <clears throat> but she brought in like Arissa White, who's at Colby, a, a poet and and poetry teacher at Colby. Um, so that was really fun. And then we worked together to to plan how it was going to work because, you know. I wanted Abby to be a part of the teaching and for them to get to know her too. <clears throat> I ended up because she's so busy, you know, I ended up doing most of the teaching. Um, but it was so helpful. We met, we met every Saturday really, and would talk for about an hour and sort of plan the week together. So we had the broad outline, and then we got sort of granular when we met every week and it worked out really well. So this year I Abby was there for the first like two months, and then we were really lucky because we really needed somebody else who could help teach the class. And we ended up getting Jewel Hall, who is um who is a graduate of the BPI program in New York and has in the movie he's released like sort of two-thirds of the way through the movie, and you kind of follow his re-entry journey. Um and he agreed, he he was between jobs and he agreed to help teach the class. So that was really valuable too, because that was a very different perspective. He could really understand what the women were going through. And some of them were being um, uh, were on release, like Anita, who was in the class, she was released halfway through. And so he was able to talk to her and zoom with her and give her some advice and, you know, some, some cheering on that. I mean, I could do, but it doesn't mean the same thing. (laughs) And I have no experience in what the challenges are. So he was really a wonderful part of it this year as well. Um, somebody who was formerly incarcerated, who has gotten his education through the prison system, and um, and is a wonderful teacher and and uh, and scholar as well, intellectual.
0: Wow that that sounds fa- fantastic. So just try to envision high school students from New York, incarcerated women from Maine. And one of the instructors is a formerly incarcerated gentleman from New York who graduated from the Bard Prison Initiative,
2: uh, prison now education my students, program. My For students 30, were all like, "He's a like because they what we'd watch <laughs> all College Behind Bars." They were like, "Oh my God, it's Joel! He's like a movie star!" Like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it was like great. They loved it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And so for just a little clarification for our audience, um, we've mentioned Abby several times, just a shout out to her. She worked in um, the education department at the main department of corrections for the women's pre-release and was very instrumental in helping women um, attain and um, complete their aspirational goals for education. So. So to you, Colleen, um, I want to ask you, um, can you tell our audience or share with us some of the hurdles, um, whether those are community hurdles or hurdles with corrections in working with either formerly or currently incarcerated students?
3: So access to these individuals is probably the first issue. Um, And depending on what facility you're at and whether it's maximum, medium, or pre-release, and also the types of staff that you're working with and whether or not they are necessarily on board with with providing access or making those things easier. Um, so there's logistical challenges, certainly things like laptops, internet access, where the internet access is. Is it only in the computer lab or is there access in the rooms? Is there access around the facility in general um that has expanded since i've started this work and i'm really i'm glad of that it has made things a lot easier for people to do things like studying at night Um, and particularly working around something like work release where they're working you know in a bakery all day you know 40 hours a week they're exhausted by the time they get home to their their facility, and then are expected to do homework, but don't have access to the internet or can't open the YouTube video that is embedded in your syllabi that you need to have. So um, there is a lot of challenges around accessing learning materials. And I would say that that's probably one of the biggest challenges. Getting books to facilities is extremely difficult. I would say student support is one of the most important things that incarcerated learners need is a somebody that they have identified that they can reach out to on a regular basis that they know can help them access or 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 tackle challenges that they're facing and that is something that I see a lot of prison education programs just don't seem to consider they think it's enough that you teach it's enough that they have finally got their books or they have a laptop but that's not enough the challenges of a, of accessing and completing a degree you're facing all kinds of different challenges and frankly some of the people that may be in charge of your care don't have degrees themselves and are also bitter that your degree is free and theirs isn't or that they believe that you should be there to be punished and suffering not healing and rehabilitating and building yourself back up again so there's Attitudinal changes are difficulties as well. And um, there's people in the higher education side that don't agree with prison education. I'm actually running a survey right now. I have almost 100 uh, respondents already, and it's only been open 24 hours, but it's two hour community college student, faculty, adjunct and uh, staff asking seven questions about prison education. Do you believe prison should be rehabilitative or punishment? Um, you know, do you agree that people should have access to prison education? And overwhelmingly, the people are the respondents so far have been supportive. But I put two questions in like, what should corrections be focusing on? And there were 10 different answers, and you can only choose one. And two of them were about punishment. One was, uh, I believe that uh, incarcerated individuals should pay for what they did was one of them. And the other one was real bad. It was like, I believe the corrections should focus more on expanding ways to punish people. I just threw that in there to see like how many, (laughs) it's like five people have chosen that. And this is on higher ed side. This is not on the department of corrections side. And as I have talked to several different people on the higher ed side who weren't on board, who weren't doing the right thing, I said, you're going to go home at night to a comfy bed. And so am I. But the people who are gonna suffer are the people behind bars who are trying to improve their lives. And it's on you (laughs) if they suffer uh, any more than they have to. Right, and uh, yes, thank you
0: for that, um, Colleen. And you brought up a good point about um, this uh, idea of free education, when in fact, you know, these students, these most incarcerated students are under federal Pell Grant dollars. But that only changed recently, right? The 1994 crime bill um, eliminated Pell Grant dollars for incarcerated folks. And so for many, many years, people didn't even have access to education. We're just recently reintroducing those Pell Grant dollars. They don't get any more dollars than anybody who is not incarcerated. They don't get any more benefits than anyone who is not incarcerated, but they are now eligible to tap into those federal dollars like any other um, US citizen to do so thank you for bringing that up and i just have one quick follow-up because you talked a lot about the correction side and access so in previous shows we've talked about the incredible stigma when people leave to try to find jobs so what do you find in working with your partner employers are they open to hiring folks who are recently released
3: increasingly yes uh workforce shortages have really pushed the hand covid has really pushed the hand on individuals and their previous judgments about whether or not to hire someone with a criminal record um and i'm i'm glad for that because uh access to gainful employment is getting better and better for people who have records um i think It hasn't necessarily come from a like place of like, oh, I've discovered that this is the right thing to do. No, it's come from the fact that they need they need bodies in they need they need people to be doing the work in their positions, and they can't get those unless they waive certain criteria that they have put in place. So it's getting better. Uh, There is still a lot of stigma. I think housing is worse than work. When it we there's already a housing shortage in Maine, and when it comes to finding a rental that will rent to somebody with a criminal background, it's a real problem. The other issue is how many uh, rental application fees exist, which is kind of a predatory process. They'll ask for $50, $100 for your rental application. And so as someone with a criminal background, when you're trying to apply, you may be facing hundreds of dollars in these fees, only that they know they're not going to rent to you. They just want those fees. So it's a massive challenge. So housing i would say is is worse than than the work situation um i think what i have found is that people will have a job they'll have their degree but they don't have a house or they um don't have access to uh their their medical care they don't have rides to doctors they don't they can't access suboxone which the the prisons have been providing so um, there's massive, massive challenges around reentry that is much, much bigger than finding work. Um, and that's why holistic coaching was so needed for people. It was really looking at your whole life picture and all the working parts from your getting your license back to reuniting with your children to paying off fines to accessing rides to your probation officer which has to happen within hours of release some of the logistical things that are expected for people who are or who have uh reentered is is almost insurmountable and recidivism is not going to improve unless There is serious partnerships, and I know there are nonprofits, there's quite a number of them who are helping individuals, including Reentry Sisters, and I commend both of you for your work on that incredible movement, because if it isn't first-person experienced individuals lifting up others who get it, I'm not sure that there is good solutions that are going to be happening at least anytime soon.
0: Thank you, Colleen. You are listening to Creating Windows, Not Bars, Justice Radio with Mackenzie Kelly and Linda Small. Today we are talking about the challenges and opportunities of formerly and currently incarcerated people face in education with Colleen Coffey of Washington Community College and
1: Rebecca Barr of Horace Mann. So I know you're just talking a little bit about stigma. Um, Rebecca, do you think... What sort of experience do you think that the college students have with the women who are currently incarcerated?
2: Well, I mean they're they're high school seniors, so um, you know, talked to them a lot uh, in the beginning, sort of about the fact that we're both in this these transitional periods, right? At the reentry center, especially with that particular population, students are about to move on to college for the most part, and the women are about to move back into their communities. So um so I think they I mean they just got to know them as people. And I it felt like there wasn't, you know, any stigma involved in, you know, they called each other by their first name and we all, you know, we did a lot of warm up stuff. So I think we were able to kind of get rid of that fairly quickly. The reentry center, I mean there's no, you know, it's sort of an open room where the women are on their laptops. So it feels like we're all sort of bring your laptops and come together for class. It's there's no, you know, there, there's no prison guards around, or you know, there's no the only people are maybe the education coordinator, you know, Abby used to be or Erica. So um it, what like and this last class one of the women was in was was older and and like grew up in New York City and you know went to the opera when she was little and everything. And so I think in their big breakout rooms, Anita, you know, she was just like chatted away. She just loved talking to the young people and she was very knowledgeable and to just kind of change their perception or or keep their perceptions open to who these people are as opposed to, you know, there's any kind of stigma.
1: Yeah. Great. That's great. Um, what do you actually think about the experience that the women who were incarcerated had of the New York students?
2: They love them. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're just jazzed by their energy and how fun it was to talk to them, especially like, I think at the beginning, like the first couple of breakout rooms were a little awkward. So I would pop in and Abby would pop in or Jewel and it'd like, it'd be radio silence. Like they've, they've talked about everything they were supposed to talk about. <laughs> and eventually, you know, I'd say like, okay, you know, so if you're done talking about that, like, here's another thing to think about sort of giving them some extra stories to share ways into the literature or, you know uh so i think that happened very very quickly their yeah. their relationship grew pretty quickly and then they would they would switch so we we did breakout rooms for like i basically did a third like each third of the class we would switch it up so everybody got to know almost everybody i think in the breakout rooms through the breakout rooms um and sometimes what was really fun what really broke things down too is when they had to do a project together in the breakout room and then bring it back to the main class, you know. So, for instance, we did an erasure poem by Tracy K. Smith called "Declaration." She takes the Declaration of Independence and she she wipes it out. So we, I gave them a practice. I forget what it was. Um, like Abraham Lincoln's, you know, Gettysburg Address. Uh, I said, okay, in your breakout room, you have to work together to decide what you want to black out and how you want to present it. And then they brought it back, and it, they were really amazing, and they really worked together. Like I dropped in on a couple of them, and they were like arguing, like, "No, I think this word." <laughs> That's where I felt like they were really bonding because they were making something together. So that was that was sort of one of the best things we had, where they really clicked, I think, really well.
0: Oh, that's, those are such fantastic stories, Rebecca. Thank you so much. You know, most of our listeners um, probably have had no experience at all um, in dealing with anyone who's been incarcerated. I'm wondering for each of you, um, is there anything you wanna say to the community members who are listening um, about incarcerated people in general? Uh, We'll start with you, Colleen.
3: Uh, well, I've, I've never, I I mean, I, I mentioned before, I hold a place of honor working with everyone that I have so far and everyone I will be working with. Um, it never ceases to amaze me the incredible talent and intelligence and magic and humor that is behind bars. Um, it's really sad. Um, so I think the moment that, you know, we, we kind of have an idea and as Rebecca had mentioned, you know, we judge people by the a, a crime, but that they're the most regular and wonderful and maybe not so wonderful, but kind of like normal or maybe not that funny. Or, you know, there's just so many different <laughs> types of people behind bars that are coming. And many of them have degrees already. Uh, you know, some of them, I mean, it's just, and uh, so many of them don't belong there. That's the saddest part of it. Uh, many of them are victims of crimes themselves or have been wrongly accused or have were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I'm always in a place of very, very lucky to be doing this work. It is my life's work. I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think that God bless me with some intelligence. And if I'm going to be doing the right thing by people, it's in this space. There is no better space to be occupying and doing the work than you do here because uh, it, ev- they deserve it. Everybody deserves it. They don't, they don't necessarily need to be there and education can heal that. It can heal these wounds.
1: Thank
0: you.
3: Thanks Colleen. Um, Rebecca,
1: what would you like to share?
2: I will echo everything that Colleen said. I just feel like, you know, we have to recognize these are our fellow human beings. They've made mistakes. uh, You know, they need help healing. And for our society to be a better place, we need to invest in these people who, many of whom have never had an opportunity to grow and to have a good education because of poverty or where they live. So all these injustices that are so systemic you know, I mean, funnel so many people into the, into the industrial prison complex and people are making so much money out of it, which just find maddening. And, you know, my, the other thing that sort of has inspired me was uh, my mother was a part of a prison prison pen, pen pal program called uh, prison rights, W-R-I-T-E-S. They did do some classes as well, but the, one of their prongs was a letter writing. And she became very, dear friends with the young man who she was writing with his name was Javon Boatwright and he so I kind of you know my mother lived in New York City she died a couple of years ago but she you know we would always be all her children were like mom what's happening with Javon they would call each other he would I mean he he wrote back they kind of just became really tight and it was like okay here's this 80 year old white woman you know from Birmingham Michigan and here is Javon Boatwright from I think he grew up in Queens, New York, who's, you know, a young black man and his, he was like 39 or something. It's like, they're just like talking away. They, they became, uh, really good friends and a life support for each other. He was released. Like my mom helped, you know, write a, wrote a letter for him to the probation board or whatever, and, uh, the release program. And he got out on, uh, july 4th when all our family was there so we all were like what he got out it's so amazing my mom and he met up and they um uh, you know and they began to like hang out and see each other and she was sort of advising him and we ended up meeting my sister and i ended up meeting him at a diner so we we got to meet him face to face it was like he felt like he was our brother it was like because we just knew all about him from my mom and their relationship and then meeting him and he was so moving because he talked about how he wanted his goal in life was to go back and be like a youth counselor to try and help prevent kids from going under the path that that he did and he was so warm and wise and had survived and suffered so much I think he'd spent i think he went in at 16 and was 39 so you know 20 odd years and then had been i think six of them total in isolation and shoe is that what it's called it was like Mm -hmm. how did you survive that i mean the strength of his soul that was so 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 impressive the really sad part of the story is that um he was released for about six months he'd gotten a job on his way to his job, uh, he suffered a massive heart attack at the train and fell down in the train station, was rushed to the hospital and died a couple of days uh-huh. later. So uh, so that kind of like, like so that might, and, and literally like everybody in my family has done some kind of work with people who are incarcerated. So it was mm-hmm. like, my turn. <laughs> and so, you know, so knowing Javon's story and then watching College Behind Bars and seeing how beautiful these young men were and the young women were that are featured in that story and how much their personal story their education you know watching them in the classroom being so engaged I, my kids my the horseman students were like wow those guys are serious about their education there's that one like <laughs> shot of them taking mandarin and they're like kongshu wow they're like what <laughs> so i think all of that combined to you know really make me so passionate too about about my limited work i admire what you're doing so much colleen because um just having been immersed in it for these two past two years i know what it takes to to make a good class happen and it takes so much work on so many people's parts but the women that i've i've met through that are just so wonderful and powerful. And then also, you know, one of our things we do at the end of the class is write a memoir. And their memoirs are just beautiful and heartbreaking and funny and horrific. And you know, so so I think our kids sort of really saw past sort of the labels and stigma and everything and saw saw these women as as beautiful. People that they're going to connect with. We're going to try and have a reunion in five years. Once the kids are out of college, they have a little bit of money. We can travel to Maine. We're going to try and do that every year.
1: Fantastic. Great. Uh, you know, I'm so thankful for both uh, Colleen and Rebecca for being here. You know, I just want to say for myself how grateful I am to have women like you and people, uh, educators who come into the prison and help us, you know, because. Most of us are trying to change our lives, and and what's the best thing you know for that to happen is education. So I, I'm very grateful for both of you to bringing you know that gift of education to us while we're incarcerated. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and your insight into the possibilities and the challenges of Maine's currently and formerly incarcerated citizens participating in education. In coming shows we'll begin to explore public safety, relationships after release, and the experiences and struggles of returning citizens to create meaningful and productive lives.
0: And next week, join representatives Charlotte Warren and Zoe Bocas on Justice Radio to learn about the upcoming Maine 131st legislative session and what can be done to redefine and reimagine equity, restoration, and justice through legislative action.
1: Make sure to visit the Justice Radio Show page on WMPG.org for archived episodes aired on WMPG and WERU. And a big thank you to Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series.